Hello and welcome to this BMJ podcast about wellbeing sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety and of course wellbeing. I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on wellbeing which is so important for healthcare professionals and today I'm going to be talking to a clinical psychologist who specialises in supporting healthcare professionals. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our guest. So please could you introduce yourself? Thank you Kat. I am Paula Redmond, I'm a clinical psychologist and I work in private practice specialising in supporting healthcare professionals who are struggling with burnout or work-related trauma. Thank you Paula and we're so pleased to have you today. So you didn't always work in private practice did you? Tell me about your experiences of the NHS. Yeah, no, so it was only very recently, a couple of years ago, um, mid-pandemic, that I decided to um, make the switch into private practice. But I have, until then, uh, worked in the NHS and particularly in mental health services. So my background is in older adult uh, secondary mental health care um, in community services. So... I think for me, you know, that's always been uh, a really tough uh, service uh, line to work in because older adult services have been historically, you know, really poorly resourced. Um, So really up against it, you know, throughout my career, often being the only psychologist um, working for, you know, large uh, geographical patches um, and yeah, it, it's been tough in terms of managing the level of demand, not being able to really deliver the kind of care that we would want to, being professionally quite isolated a lot of the time. Um, and I think for me, you know, there, there have been some really particularly tough experiences um, around um, being bullied at work. Um and uh, it's all hard to talk about, I think. You know, it's something that has really lingered and, and stayed with me um, and was was really part of, of what led me to leave. Um, in part, the kind of impact of, of those experiences of being bullied over years and not having a name for it for a long time, really feeling um, that, it, you know, it was all my fault um and and maybe I can I can say a little bit about that in a bit but I think the other part of it is um the systemic response to that and how um really that added to a sense of being a very small unimportant cog in a big machine um where you know you can have really good relationships with individuals um, that are really important, but the sense that kind of when the chips are down, the organisation itself doesn't care about you. Um, And that was very, very painful realisation. And, yeah, not the only reason, but a big part of the reason of, of, of moving out of the NHS in order to protect my sanity um yeah gosh wow thank you Paula that was sort of deeply personal and I I sort of when I was listening to it I was thinking of all the things that resonated with me about my 
previous experiences in the NHS and I'm, I'm sure will resonate with listeners and um, mm. <clears throat> thinking very much about a lot of GPs feeling very isolated, mm. feeling very unsupported, you know, certainly um, feeling like a scapegoat and being blamed for a lot of problems that are endemic mm. to the system, you know, not supported mm. by the government and not necessarily um, by the general public. Uh, and I'm sure that all applies to secondary care as well. Mm. And I think that that key thing you said about the distress about not being able to deliver the care you want to deliver and the mm. impact that has on you as a as a professional. Mm. Uh, and so, what you know, what do you think the impact is of um, working in in a system like the NHS? What what effect does that have on on staff? I think it has um, a kind of insidious eroding effect on um, on self-esteem often and on our connection with work and particularly for health professionals when we are so values driven you know we come into this work um, because it's important to us because we want to make a difference we want to help people and often our identities and our sense of self-worth are really tied up in that. And they kind of have to be because, you know, the training process is so brutal that you really have to be fully invested in order to make it through the other side. Um, So in some ways we're really rewarded for that and it's kind of self-selecting process. But it means that when things are going wrong at work, when we're not able to make that difference or we're forced into situations where we're doing harm even, um, that we're quite brittle, I think. Um, You know, it can really, really cut to the the core of what's important to us and and, um, how we feel about ourselves as people because I think our professional and personal identities can get so fused that when one is struggling, it's really hard to function mm. in mm. the other aspect of our lives. So, Thank you. Well, I feel like we've gone down this this path where we've, we've both followed a similar path of, of stepping away from the NHS. And, and that is obviously one, one route. And it's something we've talked about on the podcast before. We talked with um, Claire Kay, who, who's a coach and GP who sort of supports people to make changes in their careers, particularly healthcare professionals. Um, but I think obviously what you do in your work now is you sort of... Um, help support people who are often are in the NHS and want yeah. to stay in the NHS yeah. um, but to help them um, get back to themselves um, yes. within yes. within that that culture uh, so yeah. tell, tell me about you know what that's like and what sort of um, common experiences you, you've seen people having and and common needs that, yeah. that they've expressed yeah. I think there are kind of two different um, sort of common experiences that I see. One is around bullying, actually, mm-hmm. and people who have um, experienced a kind of trauma response in relation to that. Um, and, you know, there are some people who have developed post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of those experiences and who have become quite paralysed by that. Um so really kind of trauma-focused, you know, therapeutic work in that sense. 
Um, but more broadly, people who've experienced maltreatment and um, maybe not necessarily by individuals, but by the system, you know, but like what I was saying in terms of feeling um, just like a cog in, in a wheel, um, in a big machine. And when that is, when that um, happens at the same time as being really depleted, which I guess is the other part of what I see a lot is people um, being completely exhausted, you know, feeling kind of detached, loss of a sense of meaning in their work, um, not feeling that they're able to contribute and feel good about their um, their their work, their professional identity, um, to then be faced with an opaque system that can't hear you, can't see you, um, can't respond, doesn't recognise that, um, is is really, really painful. And that, that kind of wrestling with, um, you know, what, how do I take care of myself in the face of, of um, this system? You know, the cavalry isn't coming. <laughs> no one's going to rescue me. Um, things aren't going to change. So, so, and I think in, in that context, it's often about helping people to, to learn and to find tools and, and ways of um, uh, surviving, but also of getting back to the things that keep them going. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do a lot of compassion-focused work and kind of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is about... Um, skills for responding differently to our emotions Mm. and um you know taking action around our values which Mm. is can be really hard Mm. um yes and we were we were both actually at a talk recently actually at the international practitioner health conference um Mm. where uh, uh, anna baverstock presented her work um down in down in Somerset and I think the thing that that struck me there or that surprised her trust from her findings was that you know the lack of autonomy felt by many senior doctors in the organization and this is this is all published so you know we can talk freely about it um but I think you know that what you said there about kind of being the cog in the machine Mm. and and feeling Mm. that kind of lack of control and agency Mm. um really resonated with with their findings down there and and this big piece of work they're doing to sort of improve improve autonomy Mm. um i I wonder if you had any reflections on that Mm -mm. yeah i think it's this you know with with all of this there's this constant tension between um you know we know that that the core of these problems are poor resourcing you know not enough funding which puts stress on the system um and stress systems um and stressed people um are you know struggle to be compassionate and um so so there's this tension between all these really big systemic issues and what we as individuals can do in, in the face of that and we know that having a sense of control having a sense of autonomy um is a really protective thing 
Um, but, and how hard it is when we don't have that, when, when that's taken away from us in a system. Um, and I suppose, you know, when, when particularly early on in your career, we, we kind of imagine that, you know, the, the higher ups are better off in that sense that they have more autonomy and more control. Um, and maybe we just have to wait it out until we get there. So it's all, it's painful to hear that that isn't the case. Um, and I've done some work um, through the Association of Clinical Psychologists, which supports senior NHS staff with um, psychological access to sessions with psychologists. Um, and that has been really eye-opening to talk to people at the highest levels about exactly that, that they don't feel they have the autonomy, that they're being bullied. Um, you know, they're being asked to pull rabbits out of hats and they can't and they're being shouted at um, day after day. It's horrible. And where does that go? You know, if people aren't able to, and this is, I suppose, is where the personal side you know, the individual side comes in. If people aren't able to contain and manage the impact of that on themselves as individuals, it's going to flow down the ladder. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a bit more about bullying, which which you just picked up on. One of the things that you said earlier in, um, is that you didn't have a name for this experience mm. for quite, mm. a lot of the, quite a lot of the time. So, so you know, what, what are we really talking about when we're talking about bullying? What kind of sort of behaviours and experiences are, might people be experiencing and not even necessarily being able to notice or label as, yeah. as bullying? So I think we, when we think of bullying, we usually think of being shouted at um, or, you know, uh, sworn at or being, you know, nasty stuff. Um, and that's obviously really difficult to deal with, but you kind of know what it is. You know, it, it is what it says on the tin kind of thing. Um, but there are other types of bullying which are much more insidious and subtle and really, really difficult to name. The kind of thing where, um, you know, you might be talked about behind your back, um, you might be um, prevented from doing things that are important in terms of your own development. Um, you might be, um, you know, kind of subtle ways of suggesting that other people don't like you, for example, um, and isolating you. So the kind of isolation, undermining and... Um, preventing um, your own development. Those are kind of uh, three key things. And that kind of experience just puts you on the back foot all the time, um, makes you feel really insecure, really doubting yourself, really questioning yourself, um, and, and just, you know, really leads to isolation and... Uh, you know, you don't even need external barriers to your own development. You're going to put those up yourself because if no one likes what you have to offer, you're going to hide away. Um, and, you know, it's the kind of thing that, um, for me, would make me scared to go to work every day because 
it was like a battle. I had to kind of fight for the right to exist almost. Um, and I never felt like, you know, the work that I was doing was valued. Um, it was very stifling because I was, you know, prevented from doing things, but also too scared to do anything. Um, and it did, you know, it did tip into, you know, trauma in the sense that I would have nightmares. Um, I would, uh, you know, be on, be really hypervigilant um, whenever I was even out and about on the weekends, um, really not wanting to bump into this person. Um, but it was only when actually a colleague had looked at the bullying policy that and identifying um, these things that were stated in the policy. So there's the kind of harassment, you know, shouty bit, and then there is the isolating, undermining, and, um, you know, putting up barriers that the penny dropped and I was able to see that this is what was happening. Um, and that's step one, kind of being able to have a name for it, being able to, to realise this is why I feel so awful, because it is awful. Um, and I guess step two is what do you then do about it? So in, in my personal case, actually, it was someone else brought a complaint against this person. Um, and I became involved in the kind of disciplinary process as a, as a witness, which was awful. The process was awful. And it reinforced all the stuff about how dehumanising the system was because once again found myself as a cog in this process um it was it was horrible and, and I, it's so frustrating because that was the process the only process to kind of get any resolution and it was worse than <laughs> the experience of being bullied itself yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot it's a lot and it's thank lot. you thank you for sharing it with us Paula and speaking so openly about it and I'm sure uh, you know a lot of these um a lot of these experiences you're talking about are going to resonate with with people who are going to recognize those experiences and in, in that behavior um obviously there's a huge spectrum isn't there and you know you've, there's a lot of individual people who are fantastic within quite challenged organizations and obviously there are some organizations within the nhs who are who are really fantastic and are really doing doing good work in this area um and it is hard isn't it when we're faced with these big systemic systemic kind of sometimes societal sometimes um organizational problems to sort of bring it back to the individual and you know there's that horrible word oh you need to be more resilient mm. um which we all which we all hate um but at the same time there is that sense of you know what are those protective factors and what can you do to protect yourself and to to come back to yourself in those difficult situations and mm. do you think we could talk a, a little bit about about that yeah for me um I think there are three key kind of threads to that. So one is connection. 
I think, you know, being able to find people who really get it, you know, your allies, whether that's in work and outside of work. Um, you know, I know that being part of a team, you know, can be both the source of huge distress, but also the source of huge support. Um, so I think connection, you know, finding, finding your tribe, um, wherever that is. Um, compassion is the second one. Um, really, I think for health professionals, the issue is compassion for ourselves. Um, you know, we're good at, at um, well, we're good at caring for our patients. Um, generally, I, I think when we have capacity, um, we are good at caring for each other. Um, but that can be threatened when pressure is high. Um, so, so there are those kind of systemic, you know, issues in relation to why people might behave badly towards each other as well. Um, but compassion for ourselves is always a really big challenge. And I think a skill that we all have to learn and practice. Um, and there's lots of, you know, really great evidence around, you know, compassionate mind training, um, which shows that, that these are skills that we can train ourselves and learn um, and get better at um, and can have a huge difference. Um, and then for the third kind of thread for me is, is creativity, which um, I think, you know, for me started out as being just a real personal outlet for um, kind of emotional expression and uh really now I think survival um but as I've thought and read more about this over you know the last few years um just really understanding more about I suppose um the science behind that and, and why it's helpful and I think particularly helpful for um healthcare professionals Okay, so so I understand how I can be more connected, and I understand how I can be more compassionate towards myself. Um, but I am I am not creative, <laughs> um, and I'm sure many people who who, who you work with uh, feel similarly about about themselves. So so how do we start working on that thread um, in ourselves? Yeah, well, I guess I'd probably start by challenging you. Um, <laughs> I think that. I suppose lots of things can be conjured up by that word creativity and um, you know many people taken back to you know art at school for example and um, you know the kind of criticism and, and judgment that that um, I think beats creativity out of us but I think actually that creativity is is a real innate part of, of being human you know if you think about you know all kind of, you know, human cultures across time and, and context, um, you know, creativity is very apparent and it, you know, might not be in, in uh, you know, painting or drawing. Um, but I, I think, I think, you know, I would want to explore that with you more, Kat, and, and <laughs> kind of, um, you know, find ways of, um, you know, or, or think about how it is that you do express creativity in, in your 
life. Um, I imagine something like doing the podcast is probably quite a creative process for you. Um, but, but I think that um, f- for me, I can speak more with more authority around um, kind of visual arts and uh, craft, because that is what, what I know. Um, but, you know, that we also know that, you know, music, you know, writing, um, all of those kinds of expressive activities are you know, equally helpful and important. Um, and I guess... So for me, there's a few ways in terms of creativity. What we know is so um, we know, for example, that surrounding ourselves by beauty, by beautiful things is good for us. It's good for our physiology. Um, So, for example, studies have been done, you know, with with taking stressed city workers out to an art gallery for their lunch break and finding, you know, reduced uh, heart rate, reduced blood pressure, reduced cortisol levels. Um, there's some really interesting work in that field. And and what um, is what they show is that the more beautiful you think something is, or the more meaningful it is to you, whether it's funny, surprising, um, or has a particular resonance, the the bigger the impact that has on on physical well-being. Um, And we all have an individual preference. You know, you 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 will know what is beautiful to you and and what is enjoyable to look at. So, um, you know, even if we're not creating, we can surround ourselves with beauty and that is good for us. I think the other thing about um particularly about you know crafting for example is that it combines both pleasure and mastery which are two factors that we know are really key in terms of lifting mood so if we think about you know some of the activities that we might do you know to kind of help us relax you know usually uh you know watching tv you know, scrolling on our phones, for example. Um, and that, that can bring a lot of pleasure. Um, uh, you know, watching Married at First Sight, for example, uh, you know, that, that can feel, you know, good use of time. But it doesn't help us feel like we've achieved anything. So while it might, you know, tick the pleasure box, it, it's not going to tick the mastery box. And we can spend hours doing that. And we might feel more relaxed, but we don't necessarily feel fulfilled. Um, you know, where we think is other tasks that might be more mastery focused, like getting through our to-do list, doing housework, uh, that can kind of feel good, but probably not so pleasurable. Whereas craft is something that can combine both the sense of um, being engaged in something beautiful, you know, that has lots of sensory pleasure, but also a sense of achieving something, creating something, having a, a concrete product at the end. Um, so, yeah, so that's one way it can be really helpful, just boosting our mood. Um, and another thing that it can be helpful with is helping us switch off. And we know that 
um, swip, being able to switch off from work is a key kind of moderating factor um, for burnout that, you know, not, uh, you know, I know there will be limits, but, you know, in terms of job resources and versus kind of individual resources and job demands, um, the more able we are to switch off after work, the less of an impact that will have on us. Um, And again, you know, creative pursuits are great for helping us to switch off because they require us to slow down, to concentrate. Um, And often, you know, we can achieve a flow state doing something like knitting or, um, you know, wood carving or, you know, any kind of um, something with our hands. Mm. Um, And I'm going to interrupt you slightly, Paula. mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I think um, reflecting on all of this, one of the things that I've really got into during the pandemic, like lots of other people, uh, is is doing, well, two things. I love doing Lego with my with my with my children um and and, you know we built a massive lego set during the pandemic Mm. which was which was really satisfying um but i also like doing jigsaws as well Mm. um and i think they sort of meet my i don't feel like i'm creative because i don't have to plan them or come up with the idea yeah Yeah. but but equally you know i get you know very in a state where I, I don't think about anything else I can just focus on doing them and I just enjoy doing something with my hands and achieving something which is very pleasurable but mm. not n- difficult enough to engage mm. me but not but not too challenging uh, and I just don't feel that way when I watch you know if I binge yes. watch television it's yes. just not the yes. same yes 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 so there you go there's something creative cat <laughs> and I, I guess I, I see creativity as in, like, making something that wasn't there before. Is it is it the case that, um, you know, the more you do, the better it is, or that the more complex um, project will give you greater gains? Or, or is it that kind of any small bit of creativity will bring a similar a similar level of, of sort of benefit? What's, what's the nature of how much you have to do to really gain from it? I think the answer is that it's really about tuning into what you need in that moment. So, um, you know, I can speak about knitting, for example, because that's one of my favourites. But I think generally people who are big knitters will have a variety of projects on the go that they can pick up depending on what they need. So some knitting is, um, you know, the same stitch, you know, row after row for hours, weeks, um, you know, if you're knitting a you know, big blanket or a jumper or something. And sometimes that is just what you need, you know, particularly if you're struggling with, um, you know, real emotional exhaustion. Sometimes you just need that repetitive movement. You don't have to think. Um, and that can, you know, really help, you know, activate that parasympathetic nervous system and that is what you need and that will depend that will be different depending on your skill level so for someone just starting out you know a whole you know that might be tricky just doing learning that stitch but for someone who knows how to knit um you know doing that will be easy and therefore soothing 
Whereas there are other times when actually what you need is something that is very absorbing, that you really want to be able to uh, think a lot, something much more complex. So that's when you might want to be learning a new skill or doing something, you know, really complicated pattern. Fair Isle. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, don't do that when you're feeling really <laughs> exhausted. Um, but that might be just the thing when, you know, maybe it's not a kind of physical exhaustion, but just, you know, you needing to switch your brain off. Um, so we, we talked a lot, Paula, about what individuals can do in their own time. But is there a role for bringing creativity into the NHS and, and the work environment? Yes, and I think I think there's so many potential benefits to that. I think, um, you know, being able to come together as a team to uh, work on a on a you know collective creative project, um, you know apart from kind of just bringing some joy into the workplace, I think can be such a great antidote to that dehumanising system that we work in because um, really being able to kind of see different facets of people to appreciate. Um, you know, different skills and wisdom that, that people bring to work and, and seeing people expressing themselves um, in a more rounded way. Um, I had a lovely opportunity a few years ago when I was in my NHS team of being able to run some sort of early morning, like first thing on a Tuesday for half an hour, we kind of called them well-being sessions. But what we did is to kind of bring people together to do some creative stuff. So one session was um, I set up different tables and, you know, one table was Lego and one was Play-Doh and one was origami. And, um, and people just came in, you know, sat down, chose what they, you know, tried things out, you know, just got to know each other a little bit, had some fun, but also a great way just of being able to start the day, uh, you know, on a bit more calmer level. Um, we did some junk modelling where everybody, you know, brought in some recycling and created some things that we then displayed in the in the kitchen, um, you know, and then that created conversation and, you know, lots of ways of connecting with each other. Um and I think there's some lovely examples out there of, of people doing that, whether that's, you know, putting a kind of, um, you know, big colouring in thing on the team wall and everybody just takes a minute to, um, you know, colour something in. Or um, Heidi Edmondson is an A&E consultant who's done some of this work where she introduced just kind of 10-minute uh, slots that were sort of officially teaching slots um, but really encouraging different forms of, of creative expression um, and kind of play together. And I think that's so helpful for building team cohesion um, and being able to see each other as people. Um, so, yeah, I think creativity at work is is great and we really should be embracing it such a, a, a kind of quick easy win I think um, yeah. that's it for this episode but I'll be back very soon with some more well-being so subscribe to the BMJ on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts bye for now <laughs>